0: Today on The Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to The Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, criticism aimed at Loblaws for accepting a $12 million fund from the government to become more energy efficient. The government is taking a step to stem the tide of asylum seekers through holes in the fence. But will it work? And the tire fire that just keeps on burning... The Prime Minister, apparently, according to Jane Philpott, has broken the law by kicking her out of caucus without a vote. Would it have mattered? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A $12 million funding announcement for Loblaws has drawn criticism from some. Uh, the money is for lowering emissions, uh, reducing their carbon footprint uh, via their refrigeration systems. Uh, apparently, uh, Loblaws getting some government cash to do such a thing. Uh, many are wondering if this is the good, is a good use of money. Can not Loblaws afford its own refrigeration systems? And oh yeah, aren't they the ones involved in fixing the price of bread way back when? I don't know. Uh, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business prof- uh, professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time as always. Greatly appreciated. Glad to be here, Scott. So what is happening here? What is Loblaw taking advantage of? What sort of government uh, uh, subsidy is there for this? Okay.
1: So let me just take you back a week to the controversial announcement that Ontario was going to have a carbon tax. So was Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and New Brunswick. And the the federal government, who's imposing this tax, said to you, we're going to collect this tax, we're going to refund 90% of it to you as individuals, but we're going to take 10% and put towards special climate change initiatives. Now, that was for you and I individually, and in fact, for you and I individually, we got to take advantage of a prebate, that Schedule 14 on your income tax forms, if you're looking, and you could actually get your money ahead of time. That was us. But the question that remained at that moment is, well, that's fine for individuals. What about the businesses, small, medium, large businesses, who are going to be paying the carbon tax? And the government said, we plan to set aside a fund of money, same idea. We're going to give it back to them, but we're not going to give them a tax rebate the way that you and I got it. We're going to fund special projects as long as it reduces the carbon footprint. So, their initial guess, and this was a guess as to how big this fund was $450 million. And for good or bad, one of the first announcements from that fund is $12 million so that Loblaws can retrofit 370 stores. Just to put that some math for you, Scott, and I know how much you love the math here, that mm-hmm. works out to $32,500 a store to retrofit the refrigeration both freezing units and just cooling units, in a way that they consume less energy and thus are better for the environment. That's not the full cost of it. Two-thirds of the cost is being borne by Loblaws, but one-third is a government grant.
0: So this is Loblaws' version of the income tax rebate that everybody is going to get this year if they file
1: That's That's one part of it. The other part of it would be this is uh, another sector of the economy asking for some government support the way that. Ford or Chrysler or GM would say, look, we need some help when we retool, or DeFasco or Stelco say, and they show up and they say, here's $100 million to help the industry. That doesn't cover everything, but that's our little portion to show you how strong you are. And I think, I understand this upsets people for many reasons. First, Loblaws is a profitable company, but so are... Stelco, DeFasco, Ford, GM, and Chrysler. Uh, And yet, nonetheless, what we're trying to do is keep them that way to protect those jobs. And even though maybe many people put a higher premium on those jobs at a manufacturer, nonetheless, there's a significant chunk of our population who work in retail. And to keep a company like this healthy, you'd actually be amazed. 370 stores probably amounts to nearly 40,000 employees, and I might even be low on that number. There's a lot of jobs at stake so to do this and at the same time help the environment, I, I don't think this is such a big deal.
0: So uh, does uh, the questions asked, does gover, uh, does Loblaws deserve this government help? Or uh, on the opposite side of that, is this just their fair share coming to them doing what you know, they're doing their environmental duty.
1: Mm -hmm. So this is not a grant to go to their bottom line to prop up their profits. It It is an investment in a capital project, a capital project that is bigger than the $12 million, so we're not paying the full freight. You and I aren't actually paying the freight at all. It's coming out of the carbon tax that the private sector is paying. And, again, the idea was the government wasn't going to hold on to that money. That money wasn't going to become part of their general revenues. They would then give it back if you're doing good energy-efficient things. If you've heard this story, I would expect similar stories in the weeks ahead from Sobeys Safeway, from Metro, from other kinds of large retail enterprises who consume energy in a big way, saying, well, we've got a project like this. By the way, I also expect you'll hear other small businesses in the area getting grants to do things. This just happens to be the first one out of the gate, and I think because it is the first one, it stands out a little more than if it was mixed in with a bunch of other
0: ones. Your thoughts on how this is implemented, how it is executed? Is it a good use of these funds?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you believe. Now, look, Scott, I've got to go back again to this whole question on the carbon tax. There's a group of your listeners who believe I've drunk the Kool-Aid and I've gone over the dark side because I believe the climate change scientists who say that carbon is affecting our environment in a negative way and it is to our benefit to reduce our carbon emissions, not to zero, but back to what they were 30, 40 years ago. And so if you buy into that, then we've got to do something. We have to do something as individuals, but we also have to have something done on the corporate sector And we've tried to do it voluntarily. We've tried to do it through education. So we need to incent people, and there's two ways to do it. It's the old stick-and-carrot approach. The stick is we've got a carbon tax. If you don't do anything about it, you're going to pay that carbon tax. But if you want to do something about it and do the right thing for the environment, we're going to help defray the cost by taking some of the carbon tax and giving it back to you in a grant. None of this bothers me because I see it doing a good thing. And I go back to a basic thing that maybe people have forgotten about. There was a time in this province where we burned coal to generate electricity. I remember when we used to get smog day warnings when people were told not to go outside. I remember the haze that hung over this city. And for the last three years, we've had none of that after we shut those coal-fired plants down. Yes, we pay more for electricity, but by God, we've got cleaner air as a result of it and it's safer for everybody. I think this is part of that. But you've got to buy into the concept that carbon is a bad thing. If you don't, then this is just a waste of money, and it should go to something else.
0: Uh, I don't think people debate that. I think it's it's the area in the middle as to how far to go, how, sh- how much should it cost us. Um, you know, I don't think anybody's denying that it is changing and, and, and denying that saving the environment is, is a necessity. I just think it's, it's the method of doing it, and uh, is it transparent enough that, that, that people understand it and, and, and feel the money is going to where it's supposed to be going, and actually yeah. being effective?
1: Yeah, bless your heart for saying that, Scott. Uh, Let me just tell you a little personal story, if you don't mind. Uh, A couple weeks ago, CHCH asked me on their show uh, on a Sunday night to try to explain the carbon tax, and for whatever reason, CHCH decided to excerpt that little interview and post it to their Facebook site. It randomly came up on my Facebook feed, so I noticed that there had been 630 comments on that interview. I thought, oh, I'll be kind of curious to see what it was you would be quite amazed at the number of people who who don't believe in climate change, who yeah. don't believe carbon dioxide, it, it, for them it's, it's just a nothing proposition. Bless you if it, we were simply arguing what's the right amount. Do we take it yeah. back to this level or that level? Then at least we're all on the same page, but yeah. there is a significant chunk mm-hmm. of people who just don't, don't buy into this at all, and therefore anything you're doing is just a waste of money. So, for instance, God, if you want to do this, blah, blah, is good, but you should put it out of your own money. Don't do the carbon taxes. We shouldn't even have a carbon tax.
0: Hmm. Um, uh, let me throw this by you, Marvin. Sure. Uh, over time, over over centuries, over decades, yep. uh, uh, we have progressed, we have evolved, we have become to what we are now. Uh, we didn't create this problem overnight. I don't nope. think we're going to solve it overnight. Um, that being said, why is this not? Why is this a problem that is costing the individual? As much as it is, why isn't this a challenge that has just been grasped by industry, taken over by business and 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 them viewing this as the future and what is next i I can't think you know whether we have the internet, go back to all of these great inventions over the course of time. they haven't really cost society anything per se directly. Why does this solution cost society
1: mm-hmm so a couple of quick answers on this the first is that if we look at the industrial revolution go back a couple of centuries we uh humans had this idea that the planet had resources for us to exploit and that they were almost unlimited so there was unlimited water you know two-thirds of the uh, world's surface is surrounded by oceans we sit on sixty percent of the world's fresh water in the great lakes so it's a boundless supply and we can really do just about anything to it um, throw stuff into the air throw stuff into the water, it'll all just dissolve and dilute. And what we're discovering is it isn't quite that simple, that it is a closed system. And when you put things into there that don't belong there, they, don't, they take a while to go away. The other side of this is you asked about the cost. I actually don't think it is really all that much of a cost. Um, in my situation, I got one hundred and fifty four dollars back as a prebate i 've done the calculation as to how much carbon tax i 'm spending on my gasoline i don 't spend nearly that much over the course of a year. I look at the natural gas I burn in my house i still don 't get to one hundred and fifty four dollars. Yes, I do a little bit of flying. You throw that in okay maybe maybe i 'm just getting back roughly what i 'm is costing me, but it 's really not an expensive solution, however. What we know is if we want to change people's behavior if we put a price on something something will change. So for instance, do you remember when we charged you 5 cents a bag at the grocery store? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden people started using reusable bags and well I'll carry that out. I don't need a bag for that. I can carry that out. And and we saw a dramatic decline in our use of those bags, those disposable plastic bags. When we simply charged you a nickel for them, money talks, and money does affect our behavior. And so I think one way to sensitize people to the carbon question is to make you pay for that carbon pollution. That is invisible carbon dioxide and invisible gas. You don't see it. You don't even know what you're doing with it, and yet it has that impact.
0: We've cleaned up the Great Lakes. Uh, you know, I was a kid in the 70s. I remember all of that. Uh, the ozone layer, uh, taking lead out of gasoline why are we hysterical about this?
1: Well, the biggest it's, one the biggest comment I get here in Canada is, why are we doing this? Look, Canada is only one half of one percent of the world's population. You really want to go after climate change. You go after the Americans. You go after the Chinese. They're much, much bigger. You know, and so it's the whole argument, start with somebody else first. Right. Uh, By the way, that's
0: not the argument I'm making, but go ahead, Mark. No, no, but, but,
1: that's <laughs> a, but that's an argument I'm hearing. Right. That's an argument I'm hearing. Don't, why, why uh, start with somebody else first? And, and what I try to point out to people is this. Canada is one half of one percent of the world's population, but Canada accounts for three percent of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. What does that mean? That means the amount that we're releasing per capita is much, much higher Than what's going on in china for whatever you think of china yes they've got one point four billion people we have thirty five million so yes they do put out more carbon dioxide than we do but as a per capita basis we're the worst polluter in the bunch i'm not prepared to go pointing a finger at somebody until my house is in order it's a bit like complaining about your neighborhood looking all trashy well how does your yard look well mine's (laughs) trashy too well wait a minute you've got to do be part of the solution you can't just point your finger to somebody else
0: yeah, but the, and you hear it sounds like I'm, you know, doing count, uh, point counterpoint with you, but it, many would say that's the small population spread over a, long, a, a, a large geographic area.
1: Absolutely, and I'm not saying that we can make an apples-to-apples comparison, but if you just look at our per capita emissions, and I see things all the time, lights burning that don't need to burn, you know, people the way they drive their cars. We've got all these crossovers. Why does GM have a problem? Why is it going to close that plant in Oshawa? So many people have turned away from cars in favor of these crossover vehicles, which consume more energy. We just need to make people realize their actions have consequences. Uh,
0: The initial question, have we become hysterical? about this. Uh, having a guest on later on, uh, the headline is Groups Believe uh, groups believe Not Having Children is a Way to Cut a Person's Carbon Footprint. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, you know, What's the sense of saving the planet for the kids if there ain't going to be any kids, Marvin?
1: Right, right. so hysteria can be found at both ends of that spectrum. You know, Absolutely. Don, Donald Trump is a great example of this, who, who has these fascinating solutions that are historical in one way, and then of course that generates a response on the other end. I'm a big believer in the middle ground approach. I am not personally trying to take my carbon footprint to zero. I'm not doing that, but I am trying to reduce it. And I did some of that 23 years ago without any financial incentives at all. In my case, I had a house built for me, and I put R40 in the walls, R40 in the ceilings. A few years ago, I converted all of my light bulbs to LEDs and compact fluorescents. And how did I do that? Well, I did it when Target was going out of business, and they sold those light bulbs for 35% off their regular price. Yeah. So I took advantage of one company's misery to improve my own. I'm not saying I'm, uh, you, know, you should all just drop everything and spend a fortune to convert, but there are small ways that we can do it, and small ways add up. Uh, even if I look at the house I had, uh, I used some outside pot lighting around the other side of my house for security purposes, Originally, I consumed five times the electricity in that pot lighting than I do now. I still consume some, yeah. but I've dramatically reduced it. And I think that's all we're asking people to do. If you don't have to do something to the same degree, why not just cut back a little bit?
0: Makes total sense. Is government getting that message? Why, does this, why do we seem to live in a land of extremes?
1: Well, you know, I'll say some of it, I'm not trying to point any fingers here, is the political climate we live in today. You know, we, we, we've got become so polarized, and that's partly due to our border our uh, neighbors south of the border. They they see everything in black and white terms. And I'm afraid a little bit of what Doug Ford brought to us was that kind of populism last year, uh, where it's just throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and I'm not sure that's the right way to do it. We used to admire intelligence. You know, I can remember a time in the 60s and 70s when learned individuals would, would give you some advice and you would say, wow, you know, thank you for sharing that. And now it almost seems like we, we make fun of learned individuals. We want the fast solution. We want people to pander rather than think this all through. You know, a great example, and again, I'm sorry to sound like I'm picking on Doug Ford, but the license plate, the slogan on the license plate, (laughs) is that the biggest issue facing this province today? At the same time, you want to get rid of 3,245 teachers through attrition. Really, Doug, you know, I I can tell you, I worry here at McMaster about class sizes getting too big. And we're certainly bigger than the kinds he's talking about in the schools. I have a story in today's paper about a young man who the education system was not able to respond to in a way he liked. I'm not sure we could get it down to that level, that individual level. But I'm not sure the license plate name or a sign at the border that says we're open for business is really where I put my priorities today.
0: I just want the lettering that's currently on my license plate to stay on it because it keeps falling off for some reason. Oh. bad plates. Been like that forever. Tremendous problem, Marvin. But nobody's addressing that. <laughs> yes. Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. As always, thanks so much. We'll add it to the list, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting. The government has taken steps to stem the tide of asylum seekers uh, through a portion of the budget that was tucked Away in it. Um, the budget, of course, came down uh, last week in that uh, often now they include it's like a, a, an omnibus bill. They include all kinds of little other things to them in the last budget that came down was the provision for the deferred prosecution agreement, which, of course, SNC-Lavalin has been trying to take advantage of and has caused the whole guffaw that we're now hearing of in Ottawa. Another very similar sort of measure tucked into uh, this budget. Not really budget related, but I guess in a sense, because it does all cost money. Uh, and that is how to control uh, the stem of immigrants coming through illegal border crossings or holes in the fence, per se. Uh, the government has taken steps to try to uh, stem that tide. To talk more about all of this, Giddy Maman is with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluck Kingwell LLP. He is an immigration lawyer and with us now. Giddy, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh,
2: uh, great. I love being on your
0: show. So uh, tell us about this new provision that's been put in place. What will this do, uh, and and will this help uh, stem the problem? Well,
2: as you know, we've got a lot of people who are in the States who are coming to uh, holes in the fence to make a refugee claim here in Canada because they tend to do much better. They're more, they're, uh, uh, more often successful here. Uh, than they are in the States.
0: All right, let's stop right there, because that, for some may not understand this, this, this whole situation. So uh, talk really briefly about the Safe Third Country Agreement, how you get in, and what these people are doing to avoid it.
2: So basically, Canada was receiving a lot of refugee claims from the United States, and so they entered into an agreement with the United States, saying that basically you can't take two kicks at the can. If you make a refugee claim in the United States, you cannot thereafter make a refugee claim in Canada. You gotta make a claim in the place where you land first, either in Canada or the United States. The problem is that what they did is they made it only applicable at proper ports of entry. So if you made a refugee claim in the United States and it didn't go well, and if you went to a proper port of entry, they would turn you back and say you're not eligible. So obviously what did people do? They just went into they, they, they crossed at improper ports of entry, that is a hole in the fence. And there, they are allowed to make a refugee claim
0: in Canada uh, a second time. Because they are already on Canadian soil.
2: That's right. It, uh, normally what you would expect is you would expect somebody pushing you back. If you try to cross uh, a ditch, you would expect somebody to prevent you from doing that. But we're not doing that. So when they cross the ditch into Canada, uh, they're on Canadian soil, and now they're eligible to make a refugee claim because we signed the 1951 Convention on Refugee Claims and we're obligated to do so now the, the government of canada benefited enormously from the safe third country agreement but now that there is a mad rush to the canadian border because of the uh the uh, adverse uh, immigration policies of uh, the trump administration we now have a major flow of these people coming up and so what the government did the the liberal government remember they sent out that tweet uh, justin trudeau sent out that tweet said that we're a welcoming yep. country so They took advantage of that. They came up here. Now he's got to walk that back. But the United States has no interest in renegotiating that safe third country agreement. I said that before on your show, that that would never happen because the United States now is the main beneficiary. All of the people who are in the United States and who have no status now see greener pastures in Canada. So they have no interest in cancelling this agreement uh, or helping Canada... Um, prevent people coming from, uh, from the United right. States to Canada because they're basically self-deporting themselves from the United States. Mm-hmm. So the government has now introduced in a budget bill, not in a regular bill to amend the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, but in the budget bill, they put in a tiny little provision that says if you've made a refugee claim in the United States, you are no longer eligible uh, to enter Canada and make a refugee claim here. And it's not just the United States. It's a couple of other countries as well. For example, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, who I, I believe all those countries, we have information-sharing agreement. So uh, the main uh, target, though, is clearly, clearly the United States. So does this solve the problem? No. We're still going to see many people coming to Canada, Uh What they're going to do now is just simply avoid making a refugee claim in the United States. So, for example, if they're coming from Somalia or from South America, they're in the United States, they're just not going to make a refugee claim there. There, There's really no benefit to it. Uh, And you then just go directly to the Canadian border and you make your first claim in Canada. Uh, You only get one kick at the can, but you're getting the better kick of the can. Uh, In other words, if you made your refugee claim in the United States, you would be silly to do that because your chances of success there are far less than your chances of success in Canada. So for those people who've already made a refugee claim in the United States, they may be out of luck. But the guy who's arriving today, tomorrow in the United States, he's going to be motivated not to enter into the U.S. refugee system. Just go straight to the Canadian border, make your claim there and, you know, get whatever benefits you're entitled to and settle down in Canada.
0: Giddy though, theoretically, they've already landed, even though they're not filing a refugee claim, they've already landed in uh, another country. So does that, you know, therefore the third, uh, the safe third uh, country agreement goes into effect, no? Canada would
2: be on very, very slippery grounds if they tried that, Uh, because the idea is that the idea of the, of the U.N. convention is that everybody gets to make a claim somewhere. right? And so if they haven't made the claim in the United States, even though they're physically on U.S. soil, if they haven't made a claim there, then we sort of owe them one, at least one. So I don't think we're going to see that. I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's a huge uh, step that the liberals have made uh, because there's an election around the corner. We know that Canadians uh, are getting a little bit concerned about what's happening with the southern border. Um, and so the Liberals cannot appear to be going into uh, the election without appearing to have done something. And so this is it. And maybe putting it in a budget bill is great for them because uh, they avoid a lot of debate in the House of Commons. Um this is quick and dirty, and it'll be timely. It'll be, you know, before uh, we go to the polls. Uh, and it'll look like they're doing something uh, about the the, 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 uh, the numbers that have been coming in since uh, Trudeau uh, took office.
0: Uh, as you said, it will look like they're doing something. Will it be effective, at least in the short term? Uh, it will be
2: a little bit effective, but... Uh, only It's only going to apply to those people who've already made a refugee claim in the United States. I don't think those numbers are going to stay down for very long, maybe for a couple of months, maybe a little bit more. But they'll come right back up. You're just going to get different people.
0: So you're just going to get, a, again, it's just a, 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 another part of the process, and they will educate themselves on how to do that.
2: That's right. It's just like you know it's like uh it's like a hole that you you plug up you just create pressure elsewhere
0: right. it just
2: moves somewhere else and that's what's going to happen people who who are who are who have already made a refugee claim they right now they go to a specific hole in the fence because they know they're going to be processed there so what they will do now is they will avoid that Place They will go somewhere where there is no one to receive them and they will just enter Canada and just remain underground because they know if they make a refugee claim uh, through biometrics, fingerprints, etc., they're going to be identified as as being ineligible to make a refugee claim. So those people who've already made a claim will now try to enter Canada undetected. Those people who are arriving in the United States for the first time will now avoid making a refugee claim and continue and proceed directly to a hole in the fence that is being monitored by uh, CBSA and the RCMP.
0: Uh, Obviously, my next question was, why in the budget? Why now? You pretty much explained that an election coming and with the budget, there's there's little debate on this. Um, Were there other options? What other options did they have? What should be done here?
2: Negotiating this uh, with uh, the Trump administration is a waste of time. The Safe Third yeah. Country Agreement is the best deal that we're going to get. In fact, what the United States should do is, is, is they should cancel the Safe Third Country Agreement because it will allow even more people to come uh, to Canada. That, that would be the effect of it. So we have no negotiating power on, on this agreement um, as long as we're unwilling to enforce the border. Right now, it looks like, uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who has been very friendly to the refugee community, is now going to be the one who is building a refugee wall uh, along our southern border. Uh, this is—he is preventing a whole class of uh, potentially eligible refugees to come to Canada. For example, uh, you'll remember. Uh, About a year ago, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said that uh, the United States is no longer going to consider uh, claims based on domestic abuse or gang violence. Well, we accept those all the time here in Canada. Those are very common types of cases. And so now genuine refugees, those that Canada considers genuine, are not going to have a chance to make that claim here in this country. So there's definitely a, a legal, if not physical, barrier now uh, to uh, d- you know, potentially genuine refugees seeking safe haven in Canada.
0: Um, what does the impact of what uh, uh, Trump is 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 claiming on the U.S.-Mexican uh, border, the crisis down there? Um, how much of uh, of that is affecting what we're seeing up here? Um.
2: Uh, it, it's, almost, uh, it, it's almost like physics. I don't know that Justin Trudeau is buying into the rhetoric or the policy or philosophy of the Trump administration. But the reality is if, the, if uh, Donald Trump is hard on the uh, huge population of undocumented people in the United States, that creates a pressure on Canada. And that pressure comes north. Mm-hmm. And those numbers are are kept, you know, statistics are kept, and the public is aware of that, and then the public is concerned as to why we are getting so many uh, illegals entering Canada, and so then you have pressure on our leadership to do something about it. So even though they were not necessarily inclined not to accept these people, uh, they now have an obligation because the the the, the population, the Canadian uh, uh, electorate is saying, look, something has to be done. And I think uh, Justin Trudeau has finally uh, succumbed to that pressure and, and understand that he has to give some effect to the concern of Canadians that we just cannot have a border that you can just waltz, waltz through. It's, yeah. it's just it's not something that we've ever seen before. Um, you know, we have a, a constitution which encourages us to, you know, maintain peace, order and good government. Uh, a border is something that Canadians believe should be enforced, uh, at least a majority or a, a significant portion of the population thinks that we need to apply our laws, whether they're tax laws or criminal laws or border laws, they, they need to be enforced.
0: Is it just a matter of time before we're having the same border uh, uh, enforcement issues that the U.S. is having? Is it just a matter of time before we're physically putting up more fence?
2: Uh, I don't think there's any question, uh, uh, Scott. It's, it's only when are we going to do it. I, it it's it's not going to be this year, or maybe next year or the year yeah. after that. But like I said, it's almost like physics, right? If you have a rich country right next to a poor country, poor people will try to enter the rich country. There's There's just nothing that you can yeah, do about yeah. that. And so the United States is the first rich country close to South America. And if they don't get to you know, graze in the pasture of the United States, in the fields of the United States, they will come north. And if we don't put up a physical barrier or a legal barrier, um, those numbers are going to increase the more the United States uh, denies access to its territory um, to, uh, to people from, um, you know, around the world who are seeking, uh, uh, you know, greener pastures for themselves and their families.
0: Your thoughts on uh, the comments of Donald Trump last week, uh, basically saying, you know, we're closed, we're full, we got no more room, can't do it, sorry.
2: I never take what Donald Trump says literally.
0: Yeah, I, I think he
2: is, he's he's bombastic. He's not necessarily the most articulate president, but we get the point. I mean, if you if you just take it on face value, what he's trying to say is, look, we're we're kind of fed up. We're not going to be. Uh, we can't just do this forever. So whether he's being, if, he's, if you take him literally, obviously, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't accept that. The United States has to remain open for uh, for people who are truly in desperate need of protection. But the point is, there has to be some sort of limit. And the way we designed this internationally back in 1951 is that theoretically, uh, if uh, a million, 10 million, 100 million people came to the United States shores and sought asylum, the United States would have to be, give each and every single one a hearing. But that's just not practical. Uh, we didn't anticipate back in the 40s and 50s yeah. that there would be so many people reaching Canada and the United States. And so we never really gave much thought to it. We thought that it would only be a trickle, but now it's a flood. So um, I understand what he's saying. Uh, you, you know, you may not agree with his policy, right. but I think everybody has to admit that there is a limit to how much, you know, sort of charity, how much goodwill you can extend before it starts to hurt uh, your own society. And I think Donald Trump is expressing uh, frustration with the way things are going now. And you can see he's replaced his his chief of, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security. Right. Because he feels something needs to be done, and whatever we're doing is just not working.
0: So with this announcement from the Canadian government, is this a Band-Aid, or is this progress? Is this identifying there's a problem?
2: Well, uh, refugee advocates are going to be appalled by this, there's no question. Uh, I think the taxpayer is going to get some satisfaction. Uh, you uh, You know, before the election, it's going to be very hard to see real numbers changing. There's going to be a, a, a slight dip right now because people are are heading to our border right now as we speak, and they're not aware of these implications. Um, but eventually, like like anything in today's world, the word gets out very very fast. You're only a, a, a tweet or uh, you know or a, an email away from. Uh, solid information. So people now who are going to be reaching the United States are going to be told, you know, don't make a claim. Canada is about to pass legislation whereby you're not going to be Mm. eligible to go to Canada. So just hold off in making your refugee claim in the United States and wait and then go straight to Canada. You should be still okay to to, to physically get into Canada as long as you don't make a claim here in the United States. Uh, And that's what's going to happen.
0: So once again, those that are most prepared will figure it out.
2: Absolutely. And the word, like I said, you're going to catch a few people who just didn't get the memo, but eventually everybody will, and they will just adjust to make sure that they remain eligible to enter Canada to make their claims here. So I don't think those numbers are going to change significantly, but uh, Justin Trudeau will be able to say, look, we have done something. We We have a generous immigration and refugee program, but we also have our limits and we pass legislation. Uh, to stem the tide uh, for those who really don't need a second place to make a refugee claim.
0: Giddy Maman has been with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandalot, Kingwell, LLP. They are immigration lawyers. Giddy, as always, thanks so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, listen to the latest from former Cabinet Minister Jane Philpott. She says Prime Minister Trudeau violated the law when he expelled her and Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former Attorney General from the Liberal Caucus. In the House of Commons, Philpott says Parliament of Canada Act says MPs cannot be kicked out of their party groups without a vote. And Trudeau ejected them on his own. Here's what she had to say. The Prime Minister's words that night to the Liberal caucus are important to underscore because expulsion should not be his decision to take unilaterally. However, the decision had been already made. All right, with more on this, Tim Powers is with us. Vice Chairman Summa Strategies has advised National Party leaders and cabinet ministers. He's with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: Got good to talk to you, getting that terrible weather in Hamilton that we're getting up here, too. Uh, on the way, I think. Uh, but it, rain, ice, snow. Yeah, it, it's, it's in like, the
0: forecast, man. What's with that? Did you take your snow it, tires off? Don't take the snow tires off yet. It's like Justin Trudeau's winter
3: of discontent. It doesn't end. It does <laughs> well, not end.
0: I've called it a tire fire. It just, just keeps <laughs> smoldering forever. I mean, my goodness. It, I, okay, this week, honestly, coming into this week, did you think we would be talking about this? I thought we were near the end
3: last week, or at the end. I thought come the weekend that perhaps it would have gone quiet. Um, then there were, as you know, series of leaks about Jody wilson Rabel and what she was demanding, apparently uh, from the from the Prime Minister, in turn for her support and finding her way back as a positive, happy Liberal. That that seemed bad enough. I think that was a bit of a misfire again by the government. Then this letter. <laughs> Where uh, Mr. Trudeau's private lawyer, uh, personal yeah. lawyer, I should say, uh, sent Andrew Shear, the opposition li- li- leader, a libel notice. Um, they were not happy about some comments that Mr. Shear had made, suggesting that somehow the, the prime minister himself was corrupt. And I'll emphasize suggesting, so I don't get in trouble. Uh, and uh, Mr. Shear made that letter public, and that drove the no- news and actions in the House of Commons yesterday. And then, lo and behold, Jane Philpott today uh, in Parliament saying that uh, she believes she was improperly kicked out and the Prime Minister violated the Parliament of Canada Act. I mean, I, I... Anything related to SNC Lavalin for the government, it seems, is just like kryptonite, and they do not know what to do about it.
0: Uh, let's start with the present and move backwards. Uh, obviously, Jane Philpott saying that uh, that the uh, Prime Minister broke the Parliament of Canada Act is—is um, is anything that she's saying valid? Does this does this apply here? Not an expert in that
3: particular law. Um, I'm... According to what I have read, and and your your listeners can see all of this online, that there was, Bill Pott's argument is that if she was to be kicked out of caucus, uh, caucus had to formally vote on doing that, and there had to be a certain threshold for support. You'll remember, I guess it was last Tuesday, so a week ago when she and uh, Wilson Rabel were kicked out of caucus, Um, there was no vote that we know of. It was the Prime Minister telling them that they were gone, and that was before that special caucus meeting uh, started that the Prime Minister spoke to. I think, and you might want to get him on your program, Michael Chong, you'll remember him, he's an MP from up around your way, Mm -hmm. He, he, he reformed, he brought some... Forward some um, uh, legislation to reform the Parliament of Canada Act so that uh, caucus um, would have a voice in determining who came in and and, and who went out. So that uh, that I think is where that changed the act came from, and that's the part of the act that Philpott is calling on to be looked at. And she's asked the Speaker, um, who is the the referee-in-chief, if you will, of Parliament to look at this and see if she is, in fact, right.
0: Is uh, the Speaker, uh, does he have any jurisdiction here? Um, he sort of alluded that, hey, this is party stuff, it's got nothing to do with me. Uh,
3: if uh, He does have jurisdiction of, of who, what happens in Parliament um again i suspect he will use that line that you just cited to say well that's a it's a matter for the parties to sort out not necessarily the parliament um, uh, but uh, it does force him to look into it it does force him to uh, generate further commentary and if if nothing else that keeps the story going whether he can to the prime minister you couldn't do that i don't think so because as he suggested it's an internal party matter but again not a not an expert on how the how the law works in this case
0: uh what would be her reasoning her motive her objective here uh it sounds like she wants to stay uh,
3: I, well i i don't know um i, I don't think she's offered that yet uh, do you want to stay in a place where nobody wants you? unless her Well, constituents... why would you stand
0: at the door and make a stink about being in, kicked out incorrectly, then? Why would you just not Well, move because on? they've
3: tried to make the point all along, I guess, both she and, and Jody Wilson-Rabel, that it's about respecting the rule of law and the rules that are set out, and you can't just play... Uh, they cannot just be applied when they're convenient to you and not applied when they're inconvenient. I think it's a part of their broader narrative. I think she wants to demonstrate, and, and Wilson Rabel the same way, that, look, we aren't really the opportunists that some of the prime minister's acolytes are describing us to be, that we're more purists. And if part of being pure means we reform the Liberal Party, uh, then then so be it um, that that may be one approach uh, the other maybe she's simply uh, still very frustrated with things and uh, wants to make sure that the the prime minister uh, understands that neither she nor Jody Wilson are are, are going to sort of quietly recede in, into the background at least while they're still members of parliament whether they're liberals or independents.
0: so she's just trying to improve the party that she's no longer a part of
3: I mean, they've argued that, but again, I'm, I'm not inside the, yeah. as I say, the acolytes of the Prime Minister and, and other uh, strong long-time liberals would say they're now out just to get revenge. That may be true. It may not be true. I don't know. Uh, but she and, and uh, Wilson Rabel have made the argument that they're you know trying to use the system for reform purposes. Again, <laughs> I think time will tell what is accurate and what isn't here.
0: Um, whether they uh, were removed incorrectly or not, does it matter? Would have a, would a vote have changed that? Uh, I guess it takes 90 Liberal MPs to kick them out. Um, would they have received that anyway?
3: Yeah, I think...
0: Considering look, I the, think. the discontent there.
3: I think there may have been a few people who would have supported uh, Wilson Rabel and, and Philpott, but I, I think they would have been overwhelmingly voted out of, uh, out of the caucus.
0: Uh, so in the end, does any of this matter? Like, Jim, well, okay, let's call a vote. Okay. Let's call a vote. I'm going to call a vote. Boom. All right. You're out happy. I mean, what does that change? What well, it, it would do?
3: matter if, for example, the results of the vote came out and say there were 20 or 30 people who, if there were that many who supported Philpott and or Wilson or Abel, well, you can guess what's going to happen now, right? right? Um, they're going to get, Potentially, their colleagues are, are going to uh, make life difficult for them, or life will be difficult for them anyway. Uh, the, there will be stories of division in the Liberal Party, and people still being dissatisfied. Uh, the media scrutiny on them will pick up. Um, all of all of those things would would play out and uh, that, uh, that again, is a bit of a political alchemy that the Prime Minister probably wants to avoid, or any leader who is in that sort of circumstance yeah. would want to
0: avoid. So is she looking for support within her old party, then?
3: I think. I mean, I, I don't think she and... I, I think she and Wilson Rabel feel that they've made these choices based on principle and conscience, and... You know, in their last days in Parliament, because uh, it's not, you know, independents don't have a great record of, of winning. They may go to other parties, but uh, that uh, that they they want to make a point about, about what they did if, if these are the final hours. Or, you know, they could be setting themselves up to say, you know what, um, I, I'm prepared now to go to a party that respects these. Uh, the, the Parliament of Canada Act—it creates a lot of options, is what it does, right? Um, for the person who yeah. is is speaking, and again, not being inside James Philpott's head or, or Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, and trying not to get spun too heavily one way or the other, it, it's hard to know where what because what, they've been asked this. What's your end game? And both of them have said, "Well, really, don't have an end game when it comes to my political career." Um, again, who knows, who knows if that's true or not?
0: Prior to the end of last week, uh, Justin Trudeau was starting to point at the opposition saying, come on, they're just trying to make political hay out of this. That's the only. This is all done. It's over with. Nothing to see here. We have all moved on. Uh, and the only people that are bringing it up are opposition. Then over the weekend, as you mentioned, uh, his lawyer sends a lawyer to, to Shear saying, you know, if you keep this up, I'm going to threaten to sue you. What does this do? I mean, how does this change the conversation? How does this change the channel? Did he just not throw another tire onto the fire here?
2: Uh,
3: Usually you don't like to pour gasoline on fires that you've already started. I think this this did that look yeah. um i don't know if you've been i'm sure you're not you're a good man scott you've never said anything that's irritated anybody or n- nobody said anything about you that's irritated you but i've been involved in, in these sorts of actions before and I, I know what it can feel like personally look the prime minister is still a human being uh, and he like every other citizen of canada has the right if he believes he's being defamed to, to take action on that However, when you're in that circumstance, often you will have people who will talk you down and say, look, what do you want to do this? Uh, what is it going to achieve? It's going to make you feel better to fire off this letter uh, because one way or the other, if you go down this path, it's going to be expensive. There's going to be a big court case if you go down this path, uh, and, and you may never get what you want out of it. So well, it, certainly- most of
0: the time it sounds like they don't get anywhere, so why even do it if it's just drawing attention to the tire fire?
3: Right, and that's what it be- further became, uh, because it made it, it, it another day where the story gets talked about. The letter gets read, uh, because uh, hosts like you and reporters and others, being very careful, are reading from the specific contents of the letter, and, and the allegations are spoken about in those contents. So Justin Trudeau is mentioned in unflattering terms again. Uh, The opposition leader has said, okay, if you really believe that I've done this, then I'm prepared to go to court. Why is he saying that? Uh, Because as he reinforced in the House of Commons yesterday, uh, if if this were to go to court, then there's a formal process that the prime minister and, and many others can't just duck out of that they don't control. They have to, you know, provide affidavits. They have to do a part, becomes part of a discovery process. But does this not
0: even make the prime minister look worse by lobbing this dart and then not acting on it?
3: It makes him look petty and it makes him look uh, like he's prepared to bully people because often these letters are about bullying somebody into silence, right? That's part of the game. Now, To be fair to the Prime Minister, he's not the first person to do it, but the most recent Prime Minister to do it was Stephen Harper, the guy he said was a bully. So you're borrowing a a Harper tactic now. uh, Again, the Liberals will argue, look, uh, uh, the Prime Minister is not going to tolerate uh, falsehoods being perpetrated about him. Well, okay, again, legitimate, but the problem is you get into a debate about whether it's a falsehood or not, as opposed to moving into... Some other discussion that's beneficial to you. So from a political communications and political strategy point of view, it's really hard to see how this makes any sense or helps the government.
0: Uh, Obviously the Prime Minister has distanced himself from Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott by getting rid of them. Um, Many said not soon enough, Um, but obviously he's he's tried his best to, to, to move on from this story. Um, will he distance himself, or is he taking making the same effort to distance himself from SNC, or will he just give them the deal that, that Jody Wilson-Raybould wouldn't?
3: Yes, that's a great question. Um, and that's why I like coming on your show. You always have good questions.
0: Here's Thanks, the
3: thing. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Oh, sorry, I, thought I lost you there for a second. So... Uh, yeah, SNC, the actual phrase or name, SNC-Lavalin, isn't as common as Jody wilson Rabel and Jane Philpott at the moment. Quebec still holds the key to liberals' success or failure in the next election. They still believe they can win by picking up on a, a, fla- a failing NDP, a disorganized bloc, and a conservative party that's still not popular broadly across the province. Uh, I don't know whether they'll do a DPA because um, that may hurt them in other areas, but I think they're still unafraid to pro- push the envelope as far as they can in Quebec um, because they believe there's more to be gained than to be lost. And if you need to win seats in Quebec to make up for seats you're going to lose in Atlantic Canada and potentially may lose in Ontario, then you'll probably continue to take embrace risk. The question is... Uh, where does that risk become a loss uh, and does it become a significant of, of enough political loss in a place like D.C. where there are also uh, key races that you, uh, you, put, you, you go too far? So that's what they're trying to weigh.
0: Does the prime minister have to do anything with SNC-Lavalin? Can he just leave it the way it is? Can SNC solve this by going to court to try to get this deal? And they then, and, and, the then and then, the prime minister say, "Hey, the court said they get it. They get it."
3: If the courts rebuff them, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. on a couple of so, locations. doesn't that
0: kill everything? I mean, if the courts have, I think, twice rebuffed them. Yeah, I think it's twice, isn't it? um, Then why? Then how can the, how can the AG I, overrule that?
3: Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, well. The argument that you hear, and again, neither of us are, are lawyers, and maybe you are and you haven't told me, but, uh, uh is, uh, no. New,
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> affirmative no. But thanks for asking.
3: Well, you're, you're clever like one. Uh, the, uh, the, the, if new evidence, new information comes forward, you keep hearing that phrase. So, I uh, look, I think SNC, uh, is going to try and use every tool that exists, and in, including trying to push for, uh, continue to push for a, for a DPA, but they're, they're going to need some fresh material to do that. And I don't know that we've seen right. any that would suggest uh, that now this is obvious that it must be done.
0: So have all legal angles been exhausted by SNC-Lavalin and the only one is to get a favor from the government?
3: Show me a lawyer and I'll show you a new legal angle. I, I, I don't know if all legal angles have been exhausted. I'd be surprised if they were all exhausted. Look, you can amount a challenge on anything, joking aside, as you well know. Uh, so I, I suspect they're, SNC has clever lawyers. I suspect they're looking at other angles that potentially they can action.
0: So is that the new chapter in the story that we will all or should all be following, or is it still with Jody Wilson, Raybold, and uh, Jane Philpott?
3: Well, I think we, we, the, the chapter on whether Trudeau sues or doesn't sue is is one that we'll we'll know a little bit more about in in the, in the next couple of days. Uh, does this go quiet now, uh, or does the the PM,
0: you know, do you think he'll st- do you think he'll keep going with it?
3: It, I don't know, but w- wow. when has logical
0: strategic yeah, exactly. applied
3: here? <laughs> I, I would think they're seeing enough of the blowback to recognize that that there isn't this great current undercurrent in Canada saying, Yes, Prime Minister, you're right. You must stand up here. You must. Yeah. You've been wrongly wrongly accused. Yeah. I I don't see that being popular enough, but. Uh, next chapter, well, I guess the Speaker's ruling on this. Uh, and do Jody Wilson-Rabel and James Philpott choose to run for another party as they both admitted, they're being uh, courted by other parties? So all of those things need to play out. Yeah.
0: Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies, with a great insight into what is going on in Ottawa. As always, Tim, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated.